Hey, One Church, good morning. Good morning. All right. Wow, that was rousing. Just absolutely rousing. My name's Joel. I am the family pastor here at One Church. And for those of you that, that have um, been attending One Church or you're a member of One Church, you've been here for a while or just kind of got more involved recently, let me just say, with me up here preaching this morning, nothing has happened to, to our lead pastor, Chris Edmondson. All right? He hasn't been in a bike accident, a canoeing accident, an inline skating accident, pogo stick accident, nothing. All right? He just felt like when we take uh, this month to look at the concept of family and how we can grow our families, how we can grow our homes, how we can prepare to have a family, how we can prepare to, to get married, uh, how we can deepen our marriage if it's just your husband and your wife or you and your spouse, um, he, he thought, let's have the family pastor do it. And, and, and it's funny that he says that because I am totally unqualified to do this. All right? Like, the title family pastor is just because I suckered him to hire me. All right? That's really the only reason. Like, I, uh, I believe that orange soda is a totally appropriate substitute for juice at breakfast. All right? That's how, that's how I raise and feed my family. Okay? Last week, I paid my nine-year-old daughter $5 to go to bed. Five, I bribed her to go to bed. I have fed my children popcorn for meals recently and more than once i'm the last person that should be up here talking about family i am totally unqualified for this series i'm totally unqualified to be a family pastor i'm totally unqualified to be a dad for crying out loud but here i am and because you're there you got to listen to me sorry good thing we have god's word which gives great guidance and it's is what speaks, not me. It is what declares how we are to live and how we are to walk and how we are to lead our families. I remember when, when our, our, our first child, Rachel, our, my beautiful, wonderful, almost gasp, 10-year-old daughter, when we were getting ready to leave the hospital here, she was two days old, and the nurse comes to our room and says it's time to, to be discharged. And we had her dressed in her first little outfit. And we had all the bags ready to go. And we had all the little balloons and gifts that had been brought there at the hospital. And we were ready to load up. And, uh, and the nurse said to my wife, you know, until you're discharged, you've got to ride down in this, in this wheelchair. And um, I, was, uh, I was pushing this cart with all the gifts. And Becky is, is holding Rachel, our brand new daughter, our first child. And, and we head out, uh, leaving the hospital. And we get down to our car, which I had pulled up right into the front area. And the nurse was like, hey, you all stay here. I am required to go check your, your child seat. I'm like, okay, that, that makes total sense. And then the nurse went and checked it and made sure it was all in there. And we had put it in like seven months before because, you know, we're first parents. And that's the thing that you do. And so we're like, I'm pretty sure that's secured. It was duct taped. And there were chains on it. And we had like ratcheted it into place and super glue. And we concreted it. I mean, it was sturdy and ready to go. And the nurse comes back and she's like, all right, good luck. It's like, that's it? Like, I thought she was going to come back and be like, all right, now I need to see your driver's license and your proof of insurance, and I need a couple of major credit cards, and here's a cup, go pee in it. I'm going to draw blood from your wife. Also, there's a nurse who's going to take a DNA sample. We're going to fingerprint you. You've got to show that, that you, you have good grasp of mid-1990s sitcoms. You've got to be able to sing a couple songs, and you've got to do some soft shoe. They didn't do any of that. They just let us leave with a baby. They said, here's a human. Good luck. I was like, you all are 
yourself and you're letting me walk out with a human being that doesn't know how to do anything? Did you, were you all aware that when babies are born, they don't know how to like talk or walk or fix waffles or nothing? And they just let you walk out with one. It's unbelievable. There are two major events in your life outside of salvation, all right? So there's three life-changing, life-forming, life-altering events, salvation. And then there's two others that come along. It's when you get married and when you have kids. And when people come up to me and they're like, oh, you know, we're, we're waiting to have kids or we're waiting to get married until we're ready. I just laugh and I'm like, you're never gonna be ready. Getting married and having kids is the hardest thing you'll ever do, ever. There's nothing harder than that. And so for you to be like, hey, we're going to wait until we're ready, I'm going to be like, all right, keep waiting. Because you're never going to be. And I think it's that way on purpose. Because our God is a divine, sovereign God. And he designed it in such a way that when we get married and when we have children, that it's just like when we get saved. It's done through faith and faith alone. There is no other way to approach this than totally trusting God. We can have our finances lined up and our house ready and a house big enough to add kids, and that doesn't mean one thing when it means it's time to get married or have kids. Not that those are bad things, but God has designed these moments in our life that shape us and change us, salvation, marriage, having children as faith events to trust him, to believe in him. We're gonna meet somebody this month We're going to spend the whole month in one book, and we're going to use it as a backdrop to how we're going to talk about growing our homes and our marriages and how we prepare maybe to be married or prepare to have children or prepare to have more children. We're going to look at at, at, and meet Nehemiah, who was God's pivotal man at a major point in the history of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see today that this guy was surprisingly unqualified, but he was so needed at a critical point, at a turning point, when, when his nation was literally in a ruin. Yet God grew Nehemiah's heart for that moment, for that reason. And perhaps we're here today as people of faith, as maybe questioners of faith, as members of this church, to be grown for the same reason. Be grown for a pivotal moment in your home's history, a pivotal moment in your children's growth, a pivotal moment in your family, in your marriage. I'm excited, not just for today, but for this whole month as we look at that together. So before we go any further, let's take a second and pray together. All right, let's pray. Father, many of us are here today and our marriage, our home, our parenting is just barely hanging on. Many of us are here today, God, and we're just barely hanging on when it comes to work, when it comes to to finances, when it comes to our faith. God, let us realize that sometimes those moments that seem most desperate are the ones that are most divinely inspired by you, that you have called us and drawn us and brought us to this place for this moment for the very reason of growing our faith so we might boldly follow you 
and boldly lead our homes. I lift up our time today and in this series. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, However you have a a Bible, it's on your phone, on your watch, if you've got it memorized, on flashcards, or if you're going old school, paper, however you do it, go to the book of Nehemiah, all right? Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. It is the 16th book of the Old Testament, the 16th book of the Bible, comes right on the heels of the book of Ezra, which is right after 1 and 2 Chronicles. So if you find any of those, you're going to be pretty close. If you go to Esther, you've gone way too far. If you have a smartphone and you want to go to version, you can go to live, the live side of version. you can put in one church, and the note should be in there. There's a good chance they are not, because I never know if I do it right, okay? So either way, we'll figure this out together, okay? Nehemiah, Nehemiah was, uh, was actually given to the nation of Israel as a scroll. It was a, a, a written history, and it was actually combined together with Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one scroll, historically, as we formed the, the, the Bible that we know, the modern Bible, it was divided into two books. But originally it was, it was one scroll because it, 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 it was a story, it was a history of a very pivotal time in the nation of Israel. As these people returned from exile, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, returned to a city, Jerusalem, that, that had been destroyed. We don't know who the author is. There's elements of Ezra and there's elements of Nehemiah that are um, memoir-esque, kind of autobiographical. So we know that Ezra wrote some of it and Nehemiah wrote some of it, but there's usually uh, thought to be a third author. We don't know who that author is, but most people believe it was the same author who wrote First and Second Chronicles. So this section of the Bible was written by these, these two or three men who God was using at a very important time in, in, in the nation. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to hang out all in chapter 1 today, we meet this character, this, this, this leader, this author, Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1. I think we'll put it up on screen too, because we're just that technically savvy. Here we go. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital. Susa is the capital of Persia, which was the ruling empire at that time. They had taken over the Middle East. They were the dominant force. Their king was the one who was in control. And every winter, and that Chislev is December, it's kind of a late time of year, the capital would move to Susa. All of the the king, all of the court would go there and they would rule the country um, from Susa. So that's what's what's happening there. And uh, we pick up in Verse 2, then Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. So his family shows up, his brother shows up, and other people from Judah, which was one of the original 12 tribes, and of those 12 tribes, they began to disappear, they began to to intermarry, they began to be uh, taken over and wiped out, but Judah remained. It was Judah that, that, that God was going to call his people out of and draw the nation up. And so much of the, the latter part of the Old Testament is the history of Judah, the history of God's people, the Jews, who come up out of this. And one of them was Nehemiah's brother, who had been exiled. And he comes with a report. And let's hear what his report is in verse 3. And they gave this report to me. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates 
are destroyed. So they come with a report saying the walls are still destroyed. The people are in trouble. It says the people are in great shame. The kingdom of Israel, God's people, which came out of the tribe of Judah, their chosen people, had Jerusalem for centuries as their capital. And that's where their king was, and that's where the temple was, and that's where people went to worship God. And much of the books before Nehemiah and Ezra are sharing to God's people warnings and prophecies and messages because they were idolatrous. They were rebelling against God. They were downright sinful. And First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are exactly that, chronicles of king after king, leader after leader, who was a poor leader, a sinful leader, a selfish leader. And God's people constantly were swaying away from his law, swaying away from what he had wanted for them. And over and over again this happened. And over and over again they were warned, you're going to get in trouble. Your kingdom is going to be taken over. Your city is going to be destroyed. And they're like, that's never going to happen. It did happen. In 586, those prophecies, those messages, those warnings came true. And King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire swept into Jerusalem, swept into Judah, and they took over. They dominated. They destroyed and they took a huge portion of that, that, that nation, a large remnant, and they took them away into exile. They not only conquered, they not only destroyed, they took several generations with them. We're going to take you and you and you and you. We're going to take most of your family, and they took them away into exile. Nehemiah was one of those that went into exile. Nehemiah was taken away with the Babylonians and put into prison. And the city of Jerusalem, its walls, its temple, its buildings, homes were destroyed, left in ruin. And the people were put into exile. And they were in exile for 47 years. And in 539 B.C., King Cyrus in the Persian Empire, the Persian army, they defeated the Babylonians. And Ezra shares a little bit about what what happened when King Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. And King Cyrus gave an edict, this great edict to the nation of Israel, this great edict to the Jewish people. And he said, you're free. Go home. You can leave. You can go back. He set them free. And it was this moment of triumph. And the first part of Ezra is talking about that and what that meant as the people went out of exile back to Jerusalem, back to their province, back to their home, back to their families and friends and people. But what Ezra begins to share is so much had changed. 47 years is a long time. And he talks about some of these people, these Jewish people that left exile. But he also talks about some of the Jewish people that didn't go in exile. For some reason, they got to stay in their homes and in their, in, in, in their, in their places of business. So you had these exiles who had been gone for 47 years coming back to these Jews that had never had to leave. And there were people that moved in that, that weren't Jews. They were like, hey, here's a destroyed city. Let's go build it up. And so all of these other people began to come in, and all these other groups and all these nationalities, they began to come in. So you had some people who left, some people who had never left, and some people who had moved in. And what it made was a Jerusalem that was very unrecognizable. Jerusalem hadn't just been the center of their country, it was the center of their faith, the center of their religion. 
And now you had all these different mindsets and nationalities. And the Jews were intermarrying with people who, who didn't even know the one true God. They didn't share the same faith. And it was this crazy stew of, of, of culture and finance and religion and, and, and government. And all these things were going in and it made it a very different place. So much of Ezra's part of the scroll is sharing of the return of the exiles and, and also the rebuilding of the temple, which was their, their first great act because God could not come and dwell amongst them unless there was a temple there. But it was still a mess, Ezra tells us. There was religious issues. There were cultural issues. There were financial issues. There were security issues that were all there because the walls and the city hadn't been rebuilt and the people were all over the place. That's where Nehemiah starts. And that's why we think it's a great book of the Bible to look at when it comes to our homes because many of us here today, our home is, is one that has religious issues or, or we're getting influenced by culture. Our kids are being influenced negatively by culture or there's financial issues or there's security issues or there's strife, there's deployment, there's unemployment. There's pain, there's suffering, there's addiction. There's adultery. All of these things are happening in so many of our homes of the people here at this church. So when we hear of a city that was an absolute mess and it was unrecognizable from what it once was, we want to look at our marriages and our homes that are unrecognizable from what we thought they were going to be. We walked into marriage. We began a, a family with visions of white picket fences, the ideal of what it was going to be. The people of God, their family, and your family at this point in history are very similar. Many of us are struggling to hang on, struggling to keep it together. And so were the Jews in Nehemiah. When Ezra ended, it was around 458, 457 BC. When Nehemiah hears this report in Nehemiah chapter 1, it was 445 BC. So 12 years had passed from when King Cyrus said, Exile's over, go on home. In those 12 years, some good things happened, but there was still much to be done, and it was shocking to Nehemiah to hear this report. It had been 94 years since they had been released. It had been 12 years since the end of the book of Ezra. They were still with ruined walls. It's hard to put into context what, what Nehemiah's feeling because walls to us weren't the same as walls to them. Somebody could go, oh, you know, it'd be like if the walls around Fort Campbell came down. And I don't think that's a very good example because on the other side of those walls is the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. Whoa! That's what I'm talking about. So that doesn't really count. You can tear those walls down. You're going to kick your tail on the other side. What these people felt was a lack of security. They couldn't, they couldn't keep, they couldn't keep uh, anything safe. Raiders kept coming in and other nations kept sweeping in and small bands of nomads would come and be like, they don't got any walls, let's take their goats, let's take their chicken, let's take their kids, let's take their wives. They couldn't have security, they couldn't have, they couldn't have any type of, of, of consistent lifestyle. The security and the lack of security and the, 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 the unrecognizable culture and people, it hindered their way of life and, and the ideal couldn't happen. To them, the ideal Jerusalem had walls and buildings and a temple. 
Just like for many of us, the ideal of our homes is, is the colonial with the green grass that we don't have to mow. It just mows itself, and it has white picket fins around, and there's 2.5 kids playing in the front yard. A dog runs through, and there's just lemonade springing up from the ground. It's just ideal and perfect. But when life happens, like it did for the Jews, and life happens when it does for you, recovering is difficult. Getting back to that ideal. And it's hard. It's hard because what has broken your family? What has broken your home? What has, what has shattered that ideal? Because at some point you entered in thinking it's not going to be that way. We, we bring our family background with us and our spouse brings their family background with them. And we're kind of like, oh, let's merge it together. and We'll do Christmas the way that you did and we'll do Thanksgiving the way that I did. Or maybe your family was just so crazy jacked up, you're like, I'm never going to be like them. We're going to start a whole new way, and it's going to be incredible. And then most of us who were born in this generation were raised with images, images of other families that, that we look to and go, that's the ideal. We got some pictures of them for you, I think, I hope, maybe, we'll see. For many of us, we had television that showed us the way it should be. And, and many of us, like my wife, grew up looking at, at the Ingalls. That's the way that it is in Walnut Grove. It's just, you know, we go and we do sack races and we kill a ham every year. No, we kill a pig. And then we have ham every year. <laughs> you slice the ham. You know, you have all this stuff. And that was the ideal. And it was faith and it was family and it was community and it was togetherness. And that merged into another family. And we had the, the cleavers. And that's, that's how family was. You worked out your issues at the dinner table every night. And, you know, the beef would come in with a black eye. And the mom would go, what's wrong here? And he would just put it all out there. Because that's what kids do, right? They just share everything that's happening in their life. They never keep anything from you, parents. And that was the ideal. And we're, we're raised to, to, to be like that. Or maybe there was a, another family. You had the Brady's. And for many of us, this really clicked with us because this was a blended family. That one was so shaping when it came to this show coming on because many of us came from broken homes. In our broken family, maybe it can be like their broken family. And then we realize we don't have AstroTurf in our backyard. And there's not an, a, a maid who's just like a good close aunt or second mom who does everything for us. So we look to other ideals. And if you're my generation, you were raised Huxtable. It's the best elevator music I've ever heard, people. And the Huxtables were what defined us. And you had little scenarios that happened. And, and, and the way that, that your parent taught you responsibility, or at least that we thought it was, was, was through a little game where they paid rent in the house and had to pay for food. And, and everybody was a character all of a sudden. Or there was just a, a family breakdown. And you went down to the basement and there were, there were boxes and boxes of jazz records just down there. And I mean, it was a place to grow up and your friends wanted to be there. That was the ideal for us. But it kept changing. And then we had this family. We had the Simpsons that raised a lot of us who were just dysfunction, dysfunction, dysfunction. And we looked at them and were like, man, man, they're messed up, so mine is a bit more ideal. Even though it's messed up, it's not as messed up as them. Or we have this family that's raising us now. We have the modern family that's raising us now. I show you all these because what 
culture gives us, what television gives us, what media gives us, there's, there's no ideal. There's all these different ideals. And could it be this or could it be that or could it be what I bring? Could it be what my spouse brings? It's hard for us to even have an ideal in our mind because our culture gives us so many different opportunities and, 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 and ways to go about it. We enter our home, we enter our marriage, we, we, we have children with this idea of white picket fences. And we're going to be like the Huxtables. No, we're going to be like the Bradys. Or we're going to be our own kind of family and it's going to be this way. And then all of a sudden, for some of us much earlier than we ever thought, everything comes crashing down. Those white picket fences are broken. Just like the walls of Jerusalem, broken. And we, what do we do? The pressure builds around us and everything's crashing down and we have this broken ideal picture. It's not there anymore. We're left wondering, what do I do? That's what the Jews were feeling in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. And that's what many of you are feeling in your own homes right now. How am I going to make it today? I hate this person. I hate my spouse. I hate myself. I hate what's become of my family. Let me let you on a little secret. All right, just a secret for us. We're not going to share it with the next service. We're definitely not going to share it with the people that aren't here today because they're on vacation. All right, definitely not going to share it with them. In the ruin, in the rubble, when life is crashing down, here's the secret. It's exactly where God is. We serve a God. We worship a God. We pray to God. We learn about God who exists in the mess who exists in the rubble, who exists in the ruin. We have a God who specializes in being there. God is not in the ideal. God is where life really happens. And if your home is a wreck or your marriage is a wreck or just your own heart is a wreck, know this, God is there. And here's our other little secret it's exactly where he wants you to be because it's there that he can work. God can never work when you're going, what's the ideal? How do I make this perfect? How do I have those white picket fences? God can't show up there because you're gonna work and work and work and work until you make it that way. And that's not how it works. God wants to come along with you. He wants to draw you unto him so together you build a home that's not ideal, but real passionate and loving. God is a God who is in the ruins. When we hear what was happening in Nehemiah, or we see what's happening in our own homes, we know that God is right there. And he he has you exactly where he wants you to be because maybe, just maybe, he's raising up some Nehemiah leaders in our midst this morning, in our church this morning, in your homes this morning, we have the opportunity to go, I I give up. Or we have the opportunity to rise up out of the ruins, powered by God, inspired by his word, and do what Nehemiah did. So let me show you two things that Nehemiah did, and then I'll be done and I'll shut up for today, okay? Two things that Nehemiah did, and we get to see what he does, and perhaps we get to do it ourselves. In verse 4, Nehemiah did his first thing. He said, as soon as I heard these words. So right away, the moment he heard it, as soon as this news came to him, what did he do? I sat down 
and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first thing that Nehemiah did in the ruin, first thing he did in the rubble is he prayed. So our challenge is to pray. He sat down and and we see that that the bulk of Nehemiah chapter 1 is a prayer. It's a beautiful, vulnerable, powerful prayer. And we see that Nehemiah praises in the prayer. Look in verse 5. And Nehemiah prayed, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's praising. Then in verse 6 he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So not only does he have prayer in it, verses 6 and 7, he has confession, a willingness to repent. He says, here are our sins. But there's also action in this prayer. And it's hard to get because you're like, action, really? I mean, is prayer really action? You know, it's like sitting with your head bowed, or you know, you gotta get real quiet and still, and you gotta get a little prayerful pose going. And Nehemiah himself says, I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days, days and days and days went by. But really active? Look at his words, and you're gonna see that there's action in his words. In verse six, he says to God, Listen, listen, God. Listen to what I'm saying, God. Be active, God. I'm gonna be active. I've got things to, to say here, to pray about here. In verse 8, he says, remember the word that you commanded your, your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among your people. That's what's happened. The prophecies come true. But he's saying, God, hey, God, remember this. I'm remembering now. God, remember with me. But remember your promise. Remember your promise to us that you'll hear us. Down in verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. He says, God, hear me. Be attentive. Don't just listen to me, God. Focus in on what I gotta say here, God. My prayers are, are, are action, God. And then he says at the back end of this, he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Provide success, God. There's a, a verbal quality here, an action an active component of his faith. Going, I'm not just broken and sad here. That's a big part of it. I'm weeping. I'm hurting for my city, for my people, for my, for my family, for my religion. I'm hurting. But there's also something brewing inside of me. There's something that, that this ruin is not going to be the story of Israel's life. The story of my people. This isn't going to be the last chapter in fact, this is the, the, the rising, the, the, the potential climax here to, to, to have something happen. Nehemiah is saying life is tough, and we have a people have blown it, but God, hear us. We don't want to be done this way. For many of us here today, your life is tough, my life is tough. We have blown it. Our kids are going off the deep end. Many of us are just a signature away from 
to, from divorce. We're just waiting for our spouse to come back from, from a deployment so we can just wrap this thing up and be done with it. We're barely hanging on. We can't handle this. Remember, you're exactly where God needs you to be because it's exactly here that we serve a God and pray to God who is in those messes, who is in that rubble, who is in that ruin. And we see that Nehemiah begins to sense this and feel this because God is beginning to work in him. This story is not about Nehemiah. The story is about God and what God is going to do inside of Nehemiah because Nehemiah is done with the ideal. And God, that same God who is active in Nehemiah is active in many of your hearts and your spirits and your souls today because he wants to do in you because you're done with the ideal. God, I can't do it the way that I thought I was going to be. I can't do this marriage that's family the way that, that I, I thought I could in my own strength because my strength is failing. And God's like, I got you. It's exactly where I want you to be. Now, let's get to work in your marriage. Let's get to work in your home. God wants Nehemiah. Nehemiah homes here at One Church. He wants Nehemiah husbands and Nehemiah wives and Nehemiah families and Nehemiah kids and Nehemiah sisters and Nehemiah brothers and Nehemiah grandparents and Nehemiah children and Nehemiah volunteers and Nehemiah small group leaders and Nehemiah worship leaders and Nehemiah tech people and Nehemiah set up and tear down people and Nehemiah greeters and that's what God wants here. So when prayer happens for Nehemiah, and when prayer happens in your life, for your home, it's not the beginning. It's also the middle. It's also the end. And it's also the hope, and it's also the energy, and it's also the potential of what your home can be. All that we are, all that we can be, all that we ever will be, begins and ends and continues in prayer. For Nehemiah, and for those of us here today, Nehemiah prayed, so we are called to pray as well for our homes, for our lives, for our ministries, for our areas of service and leadership. But we see that Nehemiah, out of this prayer, he did a second thing. He acted. He acted. In verse 10 and 11, he gives that prayer, and we read it a few minutes ago, where he's saying to God, give me success. Give me uh, opportunity here to, to, to serve you. Let me, let me be bold and courageous and have no fear. And it says at the very end of verse 11, it says, as he wraps this prayer up, he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Flowing out of his prayer, there was a plan. Not the full plan. Not even some of the plan, but just the makings of a plan. Because again, this is about what God is doing, not what Nehemiah is doing. It's about what God is doing in your life, not, not what you are able to accomplish, what he is going to do through Nehemiah, what he is going to do through you. But there's a plan. And that plan begins to form through prayer, through asking God to lead and for praying for boldness. But out of that prayer came action. And it's not a one than the other. It's a both and. It's together. Prayer and action working being there in that place and saying, God, this is awful, but God, move me. And I'm going to keep praying. You're going to give me more of this plan. I'm going to keep praying. You're going to give me more strength. Do something in our people. Do something in our homes. And Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer was, was a high office, and it probably granted him regular access to the king. He was the guy that tasted every 
food that came into the king's dining chamber. And he tasted every cup that came into the king's dining chamber because it could potentially be poisoned. So if Nehemiah fell over and died, the king would be like, I'm not eating that, I'm not drinking that. He was the canary that, that was shown, if there's something wrong here, this guy's going to die. That's what Nehemiah did. It's a very important role. And it was given to a non-Persian. It was given to a Jewish exile. It's given to Nehemiah. There's a lot of people looking at that. He had this important role. Nehemiah was a server, all right? He was a dishwasher, right? He, he was the, the head chef, all right? Those are all great things, but I've worked in food service before. It's not very fun, and it's not, it's not really regal. You know, you just, there's our food, king. I didn't die, so I guess it's good. He was this man who was kind of placed in this very specific place and point and time in this very specific kingdom under this very specific king. That's why his prayer ends, grant him, me, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. God, grant me mercy to the king. I don't know what I'm going to say to him. I don't know what all I'm going to ask of him. But I know for me to do something about this broken, ruined wall in Jerusalem, it's got to start with me going to this guy and talking with him. And Nehemiah realizes that part of the plan is going to the king. He's got to. He's got to. Because the ruin and the rubble is not going to define him. The ruin and the rubble is not going to define his people, his city. And through prayer, through a willingness to act and respond, he was going to go and do something. And as we get to know Nehemiah over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that, that he, he, he wasn't called because he was a skilled leader. He showed himself to be that, but that, I don't think that's why he was called. He wasn't a gifted organizer. We, we, we see that, that that's part of what he can do, but it, it's not why he was called. He was a dishwasher. He was a waiter. What his calling had to do was everything God and nothing Nehemiah. What you're calling as a leader in your home, as a leader in your family, as a leader in your community, in your church, has everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. You are exactly the husband, exactly the wife, exactly the parent, exactly the child, exactly the person that God has created and designed you to be at this very moment in history. And through your prayer and your willingness to act, he wants to show you a whole new way of living. We don't catch God off guard. Our families don't surprise him. My beautiful, wonderful 10-year-old daughter was a shock to my wife and I. She called me bawling on the phone and said, I'm pregnant. I was like, what? It shocked and surprised us. It did not shock and surprise God at all. It wasn't like God was up there and he's on his phone. He's like, what? Oh, they're pregnant? Oh, let's make it a girl. It didn't surprise him at all. He knew exactly when Rachel was going to be born. He knew exactly how many hairs were going to be on his head, on her head, how many freckles she was going to have, the humor that she was going to have, the creativity she was going to have, the passion she was going to have. She knew that, she, that God knew that she was going to have two brothers that drove her nuts and a dad who was absolutely insane and sang songs to her all the time that she hated and a mom who would teach her from her home because her mom really loves her. We didn't take God by surprise at all. Your family does not surprise God. Your situation does not surprise God. We've got to get over that and say, God, this is jacked up here and I don't get it, but you're a God who is great and sovereign and I'm going to pray and respond. What affirmed Nehemiah's calling is that he prayed and acted. 
Not that he was a great leader, not that he was a great organizer. God did not call a contractor or a builder or a mason to rebuild the walls. He called a dishwasher. He was the perfect leader for Israel. And you are the perfect leader for your home. That gives us our big idea. The perfect leader that God has provided for your home is you. Is you. And that's whether you are married or not. That's whether you have kids or not. You are the perfect person for your home. Exactly where God wants you to be. Exactly who God needs you to be. And he is ready to move and sweep into your life. Even amidst the rubble, even amidst the wreckage, you're exactly who God needs you to be in your home. And the way that we access that, the way that we link in with that, is through prayer and through action. Many of you are struggling with where your house is, the, 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 the situation that it's in. Have you prayed? Many of you are struggling with the way that your children are acting. Have you acted? Have you sought out help? Many of you are, are, are worried, how am I going to raise them as Christians? I'm trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. Have you prayed about that? Have you read your Bible? Many of you are like, how do, how do, how do I disciple with my kids? If I, I'm, I'm not much of a disciple. Are you in a small group? Are you serving in a ministry? Those are all ways that God shows his power through you, through your prayer and through your action. Every month we put out parent cues in our children's ministry, in our kids' ministry for you parents. We're not asking you to to know everything. It's like, here it is for you. They even have an app for your phone that has all that cue on it. Everything that you need to, to link in with what we're teaching them this morning it's right here for you, and guess what? It's totally free. Our church wants to surround you in community. Not of people who have it perfect or have it all together, but people who are just trying to figure it out too. Link in with them. Join a small group. Become a part of a service ministry. When your family's going, going bonkers at night, and you're like, I just want to get them to bed. Maybe this Dramamine thing, I should look into it. Pull them together and pray. I'm not saying they're going to calm down that much, but it's a great place to start. God is not looking for you to have it all together as a parent or as a member of your home or as a member of this church. He's just looking for somebody who's willing to take the next step, just like Nehemiah. You are the perfect person for your home, exactly the way God intended it. And he's ready to bring all new love and power and mercy and grace into your life. We get it as we pray and as we act. You join me in prayer? Father, for the families in this room that are barely holding it together, I lift them up. For the wives that are tired and waiting for a deployment to end, I lift them up. For the husbands who are overwhelmed by an addiction that they can't seem to put away, I lift them up. For people in this room that are fearful of the step of baptism or surrendering to Christ because they can't figure it all, this grace thing out, I lift them up.
I pray for them, God. And I ask that you give them hearts of prayer as we've seen in your word today. I pray that you put power to their steps, movement to their lives, movement to their faith, and that they can take that step of action. I lift up these people, your people, in prayer, God. And ask that no matter what their situation is, you show yourself to be present and greater and more powerful than any situation full of mercy and love for them. And you're ready to connect with them and move out of the ruin, God. Help us do this for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our very souls, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.